This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads, but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Hello and welcome to AI Scouted on Anfield Index Pro. I'm Dave Hendrick, joined as always by Mr. Carl Matchett. How are you, sir? Filled with trepidation as to where this is going to go. Well, today is a questions pod, and we have a lot of questions that have come in. Now, there are ten in total. One of them is from Harry Welchy. He wants to know, are we still going to do the live no prep pod where people can ask questions? We will definitely do that. Um, We won't do it for the next two weeks because Guy is away and neither of us know how to record on Discord. So when Guy comes back and the season starts to peter out, we'll do it then. Uh, YNWA Foodie has asked uh, basically for us to do a, a fixing podcast for Liverpool. So, yeah, we will do that. But we will do that as its own podcast, probably once the season ends, before the transfer window opens. We'll do that. So we have eight other questions We're going to set a timer on this of about six minutes per question to try and get this done under the hour. So, Carl, the first question comes from Tubbs. With Nagelsmann sacked, if the plan is for a rebuild or transition season next year for Liverpool and commencing a new era, would you consider letting Klopp go for someone like Nagelsmann to come in with a new director of football? I wouldn't be taking Nagelsmann, no. Um, obviously he's a very very good coach but I think he has in successive jobs now shown that he still has this habit of making things a little bit more difficult than it needs to be I think Um, there's not really enough continuity I think it's great that he's very very flexible tactically and his teams are really fluid in terms of the shape but I'm not really talking about formation here so much as game plan and how he tries to close out matches or doesn't, as is sometimes the case. Um, I I think that there's still quite a bit of learning to do for him. I think this Bayern job was actually a bit too early for him in the end in terms of uh, continental success, for sure. And so, no, I wouldn't be be giving him his next chance to hone his skills, no. No, I wouldn't go for him either. I think you're right. I, I think there's still too much uncertainty with him in terms of like, what is the identity of a Julian Nagelsmann team? We know that they're going to be tactically flexible. We know that they're going to change shape and system and style multiple times, not just over the course of a season, but over the course of a game. And that worries me. I agree with you that Bayern was too big too soon. Put it this way. If he had stayed at Bayern for longer than any other manager in the history of Bayern Munich and then left, he still wouldn't have hit his 40th birthday. That's how young he is. He has been around a while with Hoffenheim and Leipzig, but I didn't think he did a particularly great job at Leipzig for the same reasons as what's happened at Bayern. And I know he won a league title at Bayern, but look, winning the league title at Bayern is like getting a free toy with your Happy Meal. 
It sounds great, but you haven't really accomplished anything. Bad managers win the league there. Niko Kovac won the league there, and they still sacked him. Unless you win the Champions League with Bayern, they don't view it as a success. That is the standard that they have set for themselves. So I wouldn't go for him. But the question does say someone like him. Are you that person who has everything? The coolest merch and those must-have fan threads? Well, over at our Anfield Index shop, we've gone that extra mile when it comes to pimping up your Liverpool collection. From our popular range of bespoke design T-shirts, sweaters, hoodies and hats, to our signature edition mugs, prints and coasters, all provided with fast worldwide shipping. We have something for every red. We also stock official LFC merchandise and are licensed with the Premier League and UEFA to sell official iron-on shirt badges and sleeve patches. As a listener to this podcast, you can get 10% off everything with coupon code AIPRO10. Just head over to anfieldindex.shop or find us on Etsy by searching for Anfield Index. And I wouldn't be against the idea of removing Klopp and going for, let's say, Michael Edwards to bring him back to the club and a, a coach of his choosing. Someone like an Amram, someone like a Deserbi. I wouldn't be against that. I think Edwards and Amram or Edwards and Deserbi would be more beneficial to us from where we are now than Klopp and director of football of Klopp's choice. So I would, wouldn't be against it. I would definitely consider it. But the director of football would need to be one of the very elite. Because I do feel like a great recruitment team led by a great director of football, bringing in great players under a very good coach, is better than good players and a good recruitment team and a great coach. I think if you've got great players and a very good, good to very good coach, you'll accomplish more. I would consider, but like Carl, I wouldn't with Nagelsmann. I think he needs to go to Spurs next. I think the Chelsea job would be a disaster. I think Real would be too much pressure for him. I think Spurs is the ideal next step for him. Ideally, I'd like to see him even take a step below that, like a West Ham. But he's not going to take that step down. I think Spurs makes more sense for him. Slight, slight tangent. Do you think Nagelsmann is kind of at a Andre Vesbos crossroads right at the minute? Yes. Yes, 100%, I think he is. And, you know, when you think of Vias Boas, when he got sacked from Chelsea, he he went to Chelsea as, as the hottest young manager in the world, coming off what he'd done at Porto. The Chelsea thing was an unmitigated disaster because the players knifed him in the back. And, well, Abramovich knifed him in the back. The players just went over his head. The mistake he made was taking another Premier League job. He needed to go somewhere out of the spotlight and rebuild himself a little bit. Going to Spurs for him was a mistake. Nagelsmann hasn't had that Premier League spotlight. He has won a league title at least at Bayern. So, you know, a more casual fan doesn't look at him as a disaster the way they looked at Vias Boas. There's also not a media agenda against him the way there was against Vias Boas because Terry and Lampard went to their friends in the media and said, oh, this guy's being mean and he's trying to force us out of our club. And by the time he went to Spurs, there was reams of paper written about his behaviour behind the scenes at Chelsea and whatever else. Uh, so I do think he's at... That's why I think Real would be a disaster for him. I think if he went to Real, it could be the end of him as an elite-level coach. Are we up to Same with, Who's six. keeping count? Uh, right, we're, we're, we're done with that question. We're going to move on. Uh, Isaac Gilding. I've just listened to the Rafa pod, the Rafa episode of the official uh, Liverpool FC podcast. If you listened, I'd like to hear what you both made of it. Now, I didn't listen, and I know you replied to him at the time that you hadn't heard it. Uh, I think you can hear how intelligent he is and how much thought he puts into everything. But as you and Carl have rightly po- pointed out on many previous pods, his tactics seem to be a bit stuck in 2011, which is odd because he speaks a lot about always learning and improving. He's still youngish for a manager. I think he could probably have a second coming with some level of success if he just changed a bit. With that in mind, what do you think would need to change about a classic Rafa lineup to modernise it and make it more effective in today's game? And where do you think he could be successful? So you had replied to this. Uh, you'd said 
you agreed Rafa might be one of several from the great tactical era that hasn't rolled along, uh, could be job-related. What's your feeling on this? What would Rafa need to change to kind of reinvent himself? So what I meant by that in terms of like it was a great tactical era, <clears throat> I think not to say that now is not tactical, because obviously we know that the tactics just evolves in football all the time anyway, everywhere. But I think there's been a huge, huge shift in much more of a technical approach as well. Technical players within the tactical framework of the team over the last decade. I, th- I think that that's undeniable. You know, the speed of play is obviously hugely important now. There's, I think, a lot more um, individuality within a structure than there was at that point when it was very, very much about powerful midfields and you know runners and a real big front man who could do everything, not just a lump, but it was still about the physicality and a lot of. Uh, off the ball work, positional play, all that kind of thing. So I think he probably has to embrace, and not just Rafa, again, several managers who were around at that time, Mourinho obviously being a a classic one, they would probably have to embrace a lot more trust in individuality than they have done. I think they would probably need to be open to probably different base systems as well. Um, You know, Rafa certainly changed let's say, in the Newcastle jobs and those type of jobs that he took on compared to his Liverpool formation. But it sort of became a bit more compact, a bit more deeper, a little bit more about don't lose the game first. If you want to be successful now, football, certainly in England and in a couple of other countries as well, has moved on so much that you have to win, not not lose. There's a big difference between those. It's you know the difference of drawing 16 times a season and only getting Europa League football rather than Champions League football. Liverpool did it for years and years and years. And we did, it took us quite a long time to get out of that mindset that you have to keep winning games. When you became relentless, you were suddenly in title races. So I think there's a couple of things that they would have to jump through there. There's absolutely no reason why any of these managers couldn't do that, except you, just like anybody else or any other job, you kind of get stuck in your ways. You kind of roll with what you know and what you trust and what you think has worked for you before. Why people like, let's say, Roy Hodgson have always publicly stated, this is my way, this is how it's worked for me, this is what I'll keep doing, there's no need to change. That's fine, but you're only going to get a continued level of where you are. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think the rigidity of Rafa's system would be, like you said, would be the big downfall. I think Rafa was also one, like... You just you don't see wingers today like Dirk Kout and Albert Riera who are grafters. You need to get more from those areas in the modern game. You can't just rely on being an elite defensive team. We've even seen Simeone this season, Atleti over the last three, four months have evolved and are playing an attractive brand of football because he's realised that you just can't grind the way you used to. Um, I also think that there's more players have a bit more power now and aren't necessarily always willing to just accept this is what we do. You're going to run yourself into the ground. So I, I think Rafa would need to become a lot more flexible. He'd need to be more inventive with how he uses his attacking players. I still think that base formation of four two three one that Rafa loved, I think is is absolutely something you can have great success with now. But I, I think you need to be a bit more flexible in terms of how you use your fullbacks. I think you need to be a bit more adaptable in terms of getting more attacking players involved. Runners, movement, Midf- not such yeah, reliance on 10. Yeah, loads that's exactly it. Not, not just having that one player. But you are right when you mention the thing about the draws. You think of Arsenal winning the title unbeaten. In, in 2003-2004. 12 draws. They finished on 90 points. Last season that would have got them third. And the season before, which was the COVID year with no fans, which was just weird, they would have finished second. 1920, they would have finished second. Sorry, last year, they would, uh, 2021, they would have won the league. 1920, they would have finished second at nine points behind us. They would have been third in 1819 uh, in 1718 they would have been second in 1617 they would have been second in 1516 the last year they would have won it and in 1415 they would have won it but that's only 3 years out of the last 9 
they would have won the league, and, and including this season, where in all likelihood one of Arsenal or City is going to break 90 points, maybe both of them, so it was, would have been second or third this season. You just you can't just grind results like you used to. You have to go and win. You have to be more aggressive and more expansive. So I think that's something Rafa would have to make peace with. And, and to be fair, we haven't seen him be given opportunities with elite clubs since, I suppose, leaving Chelsea. Napoli weren't an elite team when he was there. Newcastle, obviously not. Everton, not. So I don't think he'll get a big opportunity again is, is the thing. I think he's... He's going to be now a mid-table manager. But what he could have success with is cups. I think Rafa was a very good cup manager. European Cup with us, UEFA Cup with Valencia, Europa League with Chelsea, won a bunch of domestic cups. I think that's where he could have real success if he got a club that was on the periphery of the top four but not quite good enough for the top four. He could win the Europa League or the Conference League or the FA Cup or the League Cup. Yeah, that's fair. And I think probably Rafa took a couple of jobs too quickly and succeeding the wrong person as well, to be honest. He never really went for like a break or waited and bided his time. He kind of just took, you know, Inter after Jose had been there and Real Madrid after Jose had been there kind of thing. It it was a little bit following on Chelsea as well was, you know, a a weird thing to do. So Mm. then taking Newcastle when they were a bad, bad side, then going to China, then going to Everton. These things have moved him out of the top tier of yeah. managers, no question. Even Mourinho, if you consider him at the same level as Rafa back in the day and as the same type of manager now, has never taken those third no. tier jobs. No, and, and Mourinho has never, with the possible exception of Spurs, Mourinho has never just jumped into a job because it was a job. He's always been far more considered in his moves. But Jose, other than when he took, say, the, the Roma job, Jose was always getting his next job from a position of power. You know, he, he got the Chelsea job off what he'd done at Porto, got the Inter job off what he'd done at Chelsea, got the Real job off what he'd done at all those clubs and, and so on and so forth. He was always, you know, considered among the elite. Rafa has dropped off and he's made some bad decisions. I also don't think Rafa's been quite as good since him and Paco Yerostein had their parting of ways. I think Paco was a really good balancing act with Rafa. Um, I, I just, and it, it, it's often the case. Brian Clough was never the same without Peter Taylor. So, you know, it, it's just, sometimes managers and assistant managers have that bond and without, without the assistant, the manager's not quite as good. Uh, moving on, Diego M92. And to ask Dave if he thinks we could have sold Mane during twenty the summer of 2020. I think we could have sold him in 2021 for good money, but in 2020, during the middle, middle of the uncertainty of the pandemic, um, I, I think we could have. I, I do think we could have. Like, look at some of the big money moves that summer. Like, you had Osman went to Napoli for £70 million. Now, I know there's a bit of finagling on that deal, but he still went for mega money. Real were absolutely all in on Sadio. Absolutely all in. So were PSG. And PSG didn't make a big splash that summer. They did buy a Cardi, but that was one they'd agreed to do a year before. Real didn't buy anybody for big money that year. They went and got Hazard the next summer and overpaid for him with a year left in his deal. I think we could have gotten a significant fee for Sadio. Maybe not a hundred million, but we probably could have got somewhere in that eighty million range. Now I know a lot of fans would have lost their shit if that had happened, given the season he'd had, where undoubtedly Sadio was the the footballer of the year, and it, it's a robbery that he wasn't given footballer of the year that year. And even more embarrassing that one of his teammates, who wasn't nearly as good, was given one of the footballer of the year awards that year. Sadio was the best player in England that season; should have won footballer of the year. And I think if we turned around to Real and said, look, this is the price, let's make a deal happen, or turned around to PSG and said, look, this is what we want, those clubs, I think, would have paid that money that year. And they're the clubs that were looking at him. They're the level of clubs he should have been going to coming off that season. I think we held on to him a year too long, because I think if Edwards had had his way, Sadio goes that summer, and Mo goes in... 2021 or even if Sadio stuck another year to 2021 Mo would have gone last season it could have been Bobby that went in 2020 
I think that's what Edwards would have had planned to regenerate and continue to keep the machine moving forward. I think Klopp just was immovable on these things. Yes, I think the manager would have had a, a, a lot to do with keeping most of the players around who we've gone over many, many times. So I don't think we need to again, but <clears throat> I don't know how much we would have got for him. But I think the bigger point for me here is on what replacement we would have got and what we would have had to pay for them. Because Mane then would have had to go for you know, a, a percentage of what we were going to outlay on somebody else. The bigger problem here is, as we've said so many times over, there was never any regenerational succession really until too late like two years too late it started basically um so yeah i always thought that Mane would be first out the door out of the three um i i think that it would have been okay to to offload him at that point if there was a a big offer on the table i i understand the point we're saying about you know during 2020 covid all the rest of it but money was still spent then and actually i think fees in general have come down since then if you look at yeah. an average kind of price which is being paid this past summer, European clubs are actually paying a little bit more then than they are now. I agree. I do agree. And I think the replacement is obvious. Now, he didn't work where he went, but Timo Werner was the replacement. Timo Werner would have come in and played on that left side of role. I think that was the plan. At Sadio goals and we bring in Timo Werner. Timo Werner was, from what, what I have been able to gather and what a couple of people have suggested was as close to done to Liverpool as possible we put in a lot of legwork on that and I don't for one second believe he was coming in to play as the nine for us I think he was coming in to play that left-sided role which is his more natural role anyway um I think that's what what would have happened I think Sadio would have gone and Werner would have come in and just because Timo Werner didn't work out at Chelsea does not mean he wouldn't have exploded at Liverpool. Different clubs, different roles, different managers. Like The difference between Klopp and Frank Lampard is staggering. Staggering that they're even in the same profession, let alone the same league and the same small core group of clubs. So I think that was what what Edwards probably had in mind because Klopp was a big Werner fan as well. Um, Right, let's move on. JC Tyrone. On a scale of 1 to 10, how much trouble are we in next season? 1 being CL qualification, 10 being relegated and Jürgen leaves. I wouldn't put Jürgen leaving in the same breath as relegation. I I don't think it needs to get nearly that bad for Jürgen to leave one way or another. I would say Jürgen leaving is probably like a 6 or 7. If we have this season again next season, I think Jürgen's gone. One way or another, either he goes or he gets pushed. But where do you stand on next season? Now, obviously, we don't know what's going to happen this summer, but we've discussed this multiple times. I think we both agree there's a lot of work needed on this squad. Um, a huge volume of work. And <clears throat> it is very difficult because, obviously, we don't know what competitions are going to be in European-wise. We don't know how we're going to end the this season, what transfer outlays we're going to have, even without considering the personnel we bring in. But I would say at this moment in time, with no real clarity on anything at all, including all the off-field stuff, you know, investment and potential sale or minority stakes or anything like that at all, the infrastructure of the club is in an absolutely fine position. That's the first thing. And that's a big thing, because like loads of clubs who are quite good on the pitch have nothing to fall back on if results go badly. So that side is okay. Um, ownership is not really something we can worry about at all because it's just so far removed from day-to-day concerns. It just it, it just shouldn't factor into equations like this. So it really is about on-pitch stuff. And I think there, I would probably say about a four. Like if Champions League is one, Europa League is going to be, what, two to three? I think we're, at the minute, looking difficult for that because I would expect... Chelsea to be better next season, assuming a competent manager is in place. I would expect Newcastle to upgrade again this season. We already know Man United have got themselves a base in place now with a manager who's basically taken no shit at all. And if he gets two transfers right this summer, United are good again suddenly. Good. Really good. So 
I think it becomes very, very difficult to get back to one. And bearing in mind, one is just Champions League qualification, not challenging for the title here. So one really is already a four in my eyes. Mm. So I would say a four on that. Yeah, I agree. I think you can also factor in Spurs will have a new manager next season and, and will probably spend again this summer. That, that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> it, it it doesn't, but they're, they're still a Champions League candidate. They're in a much better position than us this season. We've laughed at them. You've laughed at them. You've written about them. They sacked Conte. Conte's done a much better job than Klopp this season, and he got sacked. Conte, since he took over at Spurs to when he got sacked, had done a better job than Klopp had done in the same length of time at Liverpool, and they've moved him on, which speaks to them having higher ambitions than we currently have, in my view. And my Higher biggest, but less of a plan, or less, less, less of a plan, future. absolutely less of a plan. But you say that, Carol. Julian Ward announced he was leaving in December. In December, who's our director of football? Mm. Who's making the decisions on this summer transfer window? Because I'll bet all the money in my pockets against all the money in your pockets that it's Jurgen and Pep, and that terrifies me. Because if Jürgen had had his way, we wouldn't have have Salah. We'd have Julian Brand. We'd never have had Mane. We'd have had Mario Götze. We'd have had Julian Draxler. Now, talented players all. But Draxler, no real desire to play football. Brand plateaued massively once he went to Dortmund. And Götze can't stay fit. Hasn't been the same player since he left Dortmund. The first time. Like, I don't trust Jürgen in the transfer market. Michael Edwards I trusted. Julian Ward to an extent I trusted because of the system and the people in place, including Ian Graham, who's also leaving this summer. And I know Will Spearman's taking over, and he's a very intelligent man. He's got no experience in this role. Ian Graham was best in class. And I had a fellow on Twitter tell me yesterday, oh, but... Will Spearman's much more intelligent. He's got a he's got a, a, a doctorate in, in theoretical physics from Harvard. Ian Graham has a doctorate in, phys- in theoretical physics from Cambridge. Like Ian Graham's every bit as clever, and had fifteen plus years of experience leading a data team in recruitment. It, it terrifies me that we don't have a director of football in place. Hello, I'm here to annoy you. I'm here to annoy you into listening to more of me and more of others on EPL Index. We don't just have the Anfield Index stuff. We've got EPL Index as well, which covers the entirety of the Premier League. And we have three podcasts and a whole bunch of really good writing on EPLindex.com. The podcasts are my own two-footed podcast, which is every day at 4 p.m., Monday through Friday, covering the whole league. We have a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. You know Tadiwa, he does Anfield Index. He presents a tad predictable before every Premier League match week. And then Kevin DeVries and his crew on the EPL roundtable there every week after the Premier League match week. So make sure you listen to everything we're doing on EPL Index and follow us there on Twitter at EPL Index. Thank you. Bye-bye. And there's no excuse for it. None at all. We've had five months at this point. And it doesn't look like they're anywhere closer to appointing one now than they were in January. And that really worries me. I'm at a six for next season. I genuinely am. Because I look at I look at other clubs who've had crap seasons. Like I look at West Ham. And I think they get a good manager in, they get a bit of luck, they probably won't have European football next season unless they win the Conference League. They could be good again and they'll challenge for Europa League. Brighton aren't going anywhere. And unless someone comes in and starts cherry-picking a bunch of players from them, they're going to be really strong. And even if they do cherry-pick a bunch of players, their recruitment team is unbelievable. So if they lose Alexis, I guarantee they've got a list of four or five players that they think can walk in and perform straight away. And I look at the players been linked to us, and I, I just think, Jesus wept, what are we doing here? Now, again, they're just players been linked. They might not end up working. Uh, we might not end up moving for them. 
But I, I'm at about a six for next season. And until I see real action from Jurgen, and the biggest thing that worries me, if I'm being honest, is he, he offered a contract extension to Ox. He offered one to Naby. He tried to keep Bobby. He's pushing to keep Milner. This is not a man who's ready to part ways with players that need to be out the door and needed to be out the door two years ago. That's what worries me most. He worries me more than anything. I don't I don't know that he's the right guy for a rebuild. I don't think he is. And I've seen nothing to suggest that he is in his career or in his recent actions. Micro football job number one, no question. And it has to be a really, really good one, regardless of any contract talk or manager mm. talk or anything at all. We need the best in that regard. Yeah, we do. Without question. Right, JJ1, out of the underwhelming players that have been linked, e.g. Connor Gallagher, I assume you know, you'd throw probably Mateus Nunes in there, given the season he's had. If we had to sign two or three, who would you choose? So, I mean... Oh, it's Johnson names, would that help? Yeah. Yeah, right. This is, this is research, people. Here we go. Um, Jesper Lindstrom. Uh, Conor Gallagher, obviously, we've said. Varela, Gravenberch, and Nunez as, as midfield options. Take which ones you want as a potential underwhelming. Uh, Salzburg's Luka Sucic. Uh, then there is one more, which I've lost. Let's go for them and whoever else you can think of, because I've lost the last one. So, of that group... Oh, Mason um, I like Mason Mount. Now, in a normal circumstance where, say, we hadn't just thrown away a season and spent two years phoning over Jude Bellingham, Mason Mount wouldn't be underwhelming. In fact, I'd be very excited about Mason Mount. But if it's Mason Mount instead of Jude, that is underwhelming. But I would still take Mason Mount. I still think Mason Mount is the right age, the right profile, the right skill set. I think he could fit in on the right side of that midfield and score double figures every single season. I think he's really good. I like Matthias Nunes, and I think if you could rotate him and Thiago on the left side and get a different look with them, I would take him. So they're probably the two. I, I, you mentioned Barella. For me, he wouldn't be underwhelming. He he would be... I think he's uh, from the, the Category A box. He was just on the list. But Conor Gallagher, to me, he's poor defensively, and he's not good on the ball. So what am I getting? Now, there's an article on This Is Anfield today by Jack Losby saying that statistically he's like for like with Bellingham, but he's not because what Conor Gallagher is benefiting from is the small sample size of 1,400 minutes versus Bellingham's 3,100 minutes. Conor Gallagher is benefiting from the odd good sub-appearance and Bellingham having the odd poor start. Milner statistically you can make an argument, has been a good player over the years, but it's, it's small sample sizes. Plays 1,000 or 1,500 minutes, compare that to someone that plays 4,000 minutes, it's going to break in his favour because all he needs to do is do well for 20 minutes here and there. Um, others I would throw into this. Now, more because I think they're not necessarily people, players that everybody sees a lot of. Kefren Turan, I would absolutely take. I think he's got... Huge potential. I really like what he can offer. Uh, I think Alex Scott would be underwhelming to a lot of people because he's coming from the championship. But again, I would absolutely take Alex Scott. But the the two I would look at, I would say Mount and Nunes. If you put them either side of a really good number six, I think that's a very functional Liverpool-esque midfield. Is it ideal? No. Is it significantly better than what we have Without question. You still have Thiago. You still have Fabinho. Those are your fourth and fifth midfielders. You play in the big games. If our starting midfield was Nunes, let's say Romeo Lavia, who might be underwhelming to some people because Southampton are getting relegated. And Nunes, I think a lot of people would be disappointed in that midfield, but I actually think that would be a really good functional midfield. Yeah, I mean, there are, by by the nature of picking underwhelming signings, we're not going to get ones that everybody wants. But <clears throat> um, out of the the initial list, there, I'd still take Nunez because 
I've seen him have more impactful games than the rest of them, I suppose. And yeah. I think you can probably make him at least one of two different types of midfielders as well. Um, Fee-wise, if Matthias Nunez and Conor Gallagher are roughly the same, there's not even the slightest hint of a question as to which one I would be taking. Yeah. I mean, Gallagher's probably the only one... Gallagher and Declan Rice are the two midfielders I'm I'm completely opposed to us considering. Gallagher, because I just don't think he's anywhere near good enough. Rice, because I just don't... I, I continually see people talk about him as this great defensive midfielder. He just isn't. He's not a defensive midfielder. Declan Rice is a box-to-box midfielder whose best attribute is, is his ability to carry the ball. That's his best attribute. He's a decent passer from deep when he's got time and space. But his ability to carry the ball through traffic is, is his best attribute. And the best use of Declan Rice is in a two-man midfield next to somebody who sits and controls and sprays the ball around. The ideal fits for Declan Rice in the Premier League are Chelsea next to Enzo in a two, or Newcastle next to Gimerish in a two. But Newcastle don't play a two, so it's not a like-for-like fit. He doesn't fit our three. He's not defensively good enough as a six. And I don't think he's quite technical enough as the left-sided eight, or smart enough. That role takes a very high level of intelligence to play. Ginny, Thiago, super intelligent players. There's a reason they're the two that have excelled there. Declan Rice isn't that. And then I see people talk about him as a leader. Ask any West Ham fan what the biggest issue for them this season has been. A complete void of leadership with Mark Noble gone. So the idea that Rice is this great leader is nonsense. When all the pressure was put on Rice, he has folded. And game after game, he is getting comprehensively outplayed in midfield by midfielders who range from Moises Caicedo at the top end to Harrison Reed ran all over him last weekend. Now, I know West Ham won the game, but they won the game on an own goal after a handball that should have been disallowed. And Rice was not impressive. He, he does certain statistical things that show up really well. So you'll go on sofa score or wherever you get your player ratings and he'll get a 7.2. You watch the game and you see how uninvolved he is, how poor positionally he is, things that don't st- show up statistically. The, the price is the biggest issue at Rice. If you could get him for 40, 45 million, which is what he's worth, I'd take him. And I wouldn't be against moving. I, I, I like the idea of us moving to a two-man midfield. At 40 to 45 million, I could get on board with Declan Rice, but not at 80. Not even close to it. Yeah, no, I wouldn't be paying anywhere near that for Rice, and I wouldn't be paying that much for anyone who wasn't an elite-level performer. That's club record top, what, 15 world transfers yeah. ever. Um, that, that's not one to to go on someone who you're not absolutely certain on. Um <clears throat> Just for a couple of other names, I mean, I agree with you on uh, Kefram Turam. Really good option. Ball carrier, pff, loads of good stuff there. I'm just thinking like in terms of what we need and to bring a bit of mobility and that kind of thing into midfield. Manu Kono, who I mentioned yeah. last summer as who, should, yeah. who I would have top of my list, I would still have near the top of the list. Um, if I'm looking within the Premier League for someone, I would take a bit of a gamble on if we could get for around the... I say 30, 35 million sort of range. Rather than go on Conor Gallagher, I would be more inclined to go with someone like Ebbe Eze, who's much yeah. better as a ball carrier, has a bit better technique to his game, set pieces, uh, delivery can be really good. Inconsistent still, and not really tested at the very highest level, but nor is Conor Gallagher proven at the highest level. He doesn't get in the team at the highest level. So I would be more inclined to take more of a gamble with more of a potential upside if you had good coaches in place. Yeah, I I, I love Eberichi as I know. The, the, the two I'd love from Palace are Michael Elise and I, I really like Czech de Coure. But Eze's, Eze's an absolutely tremendous footballer. Like you said, consistency is the issue. But I, I look at, I, I take the Neo from Forrest if they go down. I think he could be a really good fit on that left side as a 
as a Ginny type of player. Um, if Leeds went down, I, I'd take Tyler Adams. I think he's a really good player. I think he could play that left-sided eight role. Um, there's, a, there's a bunch, and actually that's something I want to do as a podcast with you over the next couple of weeks, is go through the nine sides from Palace down who are in that relegation mix. And then, you know, we'll have a look at the other leagues as well and what players would we take from there. Um, right, let's move on then. Nigel, uh, I said months ago, the question would be, of would it be better to sign one player for 130 million, which would be Jude, or spend 130 to 150 million on three or four players to replace a midfield? And which players would you nominate? Now, for me, it's a no-brainer. You spend it on the three or four players. And I think we've named a couple there that absolutely would fit in. Manu Kone, you mentioned, he would be perfect. Legs, energy, ball winning, drive, really high technical level. Kefren Turam, the exact same thing. You could get the two of them for probably 70 million. And then you still have 80 million left over. Now, if it's three you want, then the last one I'd go and look for is probably Moises Caicedo. And I know that's three more defensive-minded midfielders. But if Manu Kone is your new Henderson, Caicedo is your new Fabinho, and Kefren Turm's your new Ginny, I think that's the type of midfield that has huge potential and upside to develop. And I think all of them have enough on the ball that they're not a complete void in possession. But they also facilitate Trent having more of an attacking role, Robbo having more freedom, or if you want to replace Robbo. For me, the move is to go for the three or four for that kind of money. You don't spend it on one player when you need an entirely new midfield. The maybe not quite that much, but let's say the the 70 to 100 million range once is what we should have been doing from three years ago. Sign the very best player we need and can get in one summer and start that regeneration, start whether it was the forward line or the midfield line, start adding new face to it once a year. That's what we should have been doing. We wouldn't have been able to do 100 million every single summer, obviously, but rather than leaving ourselves eight now to do, across the the entire team, we probably should have been looking at one really big one and one squad player each summer. That's what we should have been doing. So now, yeah, we are we're in a position where we don't have a choice. We've literally already just heard that, that the club have put out the the line through the media, obviously. Oh, we, we've, we've decided now that it's best for us. Well, we could see this three years ago. You haven't just decided this. You've, you might have only just realised, but everyone else could see this three years ago. You're never going to be in a position to spend 150 on someone when you haven't been building the team as you go. Mm. So there isn't even a question to answer there. Here's the thing, Carl. I agree. We should have been spending that kind of 70, 75 million on a player each season to regenerate. From the minute we won the European Cup, that's what should have been happening. We should have been adding a top player every year. Two if we were making a, a good sale. But we won the European Cup in 2019. Now, in the summer of 2018, we spent over $100 million net. It's the only time FS, FSG have spent real money at Liverpool. Since then, like since that summer of 2018, when Alisson arrived, Fabinho arrived, Naby arrived, and Shakiri arrived, our net spend since then, including Cody Gakpo, is $75 million. 75 million. In the two years where we won the European Cup and won the league title, our, we made a profit of 6 million across four windows. 6 million. Then we signed Ibu, the only thing we did for a summer. Made a big profit that summer. Then we signed Diaz in the January. So that brought us into the net spend of about 20 odd million. And then. We are where we are now. Like It's just, it's unacceptable. It's unacceptable that that's the level of spending. So as I said on the Daily Red today, I don't want to hear from James Pierce 
or any of his other pals at the Athletic or anyone else that the reason Liverpool might not spend this summer is they didn't have Champions League football. Liverpool have had Champions League football every year since the 17-18 season. And there's only been one year in which they've spent real money. So I don't want to hear that that's the excuse. It's not an excuse. It holds no water with me at all. And this idea that, well, Liverpool thought Bellingham could be had for about 80 million. You couldn't have bought him for 80 million last summer, let alone this summer. And then this notion that, well, his exceptional performances at the World Cup drove the price of bullshit. I don't need a VPN. I've got nothing to hide. <laughs> this is what I used to tell myself before I hooked up with LibertyShield.com. Not only is my home internet now fully encrypted, but I can now access all the websites I want, whenever I want, and do so from absolutely anywhere. As a Liverpool fan, I love to know I can now watch every match, regardless of whether it's on UK TV or not. My Liberty Shield VPN makes sure nothing is blocked and guarantees me super fast streaming speed throughout that match. You can get connected right now with their software package, which includes a 48-hour no-obligation free trial and instant access to their apps for Apple, Android, Fire TV, PC, Mac and Android TV. Or go a step further like I have and get one of their pre-configured VPN routers. These small but powerful devices allow you to easily connect every device in your home to VPN, making it the perfect solution for smart TVs, mag boxes and games consoles. Visit libertyshield.com today and use coupon code AIVPN25 to get 25% off at checkout. He was poor against France. He was awful against the United States. He played well against Senegal, who were missing multiple players. What outstanding performance did he have in the World Cup? When did you watch Jude in the World Cup and think, that's the guy, that's the future of midfielders? There wasn't one outstanding Jude Bellingham performance at the World Cup. He had a couple of good games. Loads of players did. Didn't change his value. Smart clubs don't change values based on World Club, World, uh, World Cups or European Championships. They just don't anymore. Because everybody got burned with it in the 90s and 2000s. And people re- realise now that the standard and the speed of international football is not reflective of club football. The Champions League is where players are made now and where valuations are set. This idea that we, we thought we were going to get Jude for it, it was bullshit. Absolute bullshit. Now, there is the possibility, as I've said a couple of times, that this has been leaked by Liverpool. We saw similar practice with Alisson, with Naby, with Virgil, with Diaz, with Darwin, with Thiago. Or Liverpool won't be signing those players. From the same journalist, from, from, from Paul Joyce, the most reliable of all Liverpool journalists, Liverpool won't be signing Alisson Becker. A week later, Alisson Becker's in the door. Liverpool won't be signing Thiago. Thiago's in the door. Manchester United are favourites to get Darwin. Darwin's in the door. Liverpool don't have interest in Luis Diaz. Diaz is in the door. So it may well be that Liverpool have planted this to try and bring the price down. They may have gotten assurances from Jude's camp that were the club he wants. But the question then is, is it smart to spend all that money on him when we need so much else? No, it isn't. <laughs> Unless you can bring the price down quite considerably or get a really, really good um, arrangement of when everything's paid, then of mm. course there's, there's no discussion to be had on this one. Right, Omar is up next. Which players can we target, whether it's one or two players, that can emulate the quality that we could have gotten with Jude? I think we've named two in Kone and Turan. I think those two together replicate a lot of what Jude does. Now, not necessarily his final third work. You could say Kone and Jacob Ramsey as a duo could potentially replicate what Jude offers. And I really like Jacob Ramsey. I wouldn't be at all against kicking the tyres on that one. I'd even say Kone, and a lot of people might not go for this one, but I think Morgan Gibbs-White is a phenomenally talented player. And I think if you've got Kone as that middle third Jude and Gibbs-White to replicate what Jude offers in the final third, I think 
Gibbs White is even maybe a bit more creative than Jude. I think those are the type of players you could look at and, and piece together an approximation of Jude for less than what Jude would cost. Yes. Um, I mean, obviously the knock-on here is that if you're putting in two players, let's say, to replace Jude's output, you are also replacing somebody else's output. So let's say Thiago or whatever. You know, in, in terms of build-up play and actual two players into midfield, you've, you're taking two players out. So we we have more to consider here than just how do you replicate Bellingham, obviously. But those players who we've already mentioned, outside of right, really unattainable players like... Um, Goretzka, let's say, or Martin Odegaard, for example, in terms of build-up play and ball-carrying. Um, De Bruyne, obviously, in terms of ball-carrying and final third deliveries. These kinds of players, if you ignore them, I think we've probably named most of the most similar ones. The defensive side, I think, is less quantifiable with Jude than his attack and output because it's not something you always see just because it's a lot of running power sometimes to close off spaces, mm. to track back to shut off passing lanes and doesn't necessarily actually do any of the defensive actions, let's say. He's just, he has to be able to be in both halves of the pitch. Yeah, he's an active defender rather yeah. than a good defender is how I, I'd parse him. He, he, he does, he shows up well in a lot of defensive metrics because he covers a lot of ground, but he, he does, he misses on rotations, he switches off, he doesn't always track his runners, people run off his shoulder because he can be a little bit too focused on it's it's like watching a young Gerard when Gerard would just get fixated on I have to do this all by myself and he'd go charging at a position and he wouldn't quite get to the ball and then there's a big hole left. Um the other one who I'd maybe mention, I think we've actually spoken about him before a while ago. Nothing in terms of stature or physicality or anything like that, but ball carrying and shooting from midfield, basically getting himself into the box into good areas is Gabby Vega from Celta. He's mm. a bit more of a, an all-round offensive player than Jude, so you know, whether whether it's a straight eight or a slightly different system switch, I think he's probably one who ticks a lot of boxes in terms of filling in for what we'd lose by not getting Jude. The one I'd look at is Dominic Zabozlai. I think he has that ball-carrying, that power moving forward. I think his, his ability to shoot with both feet is phenomenal. I think as a set-piece taker, he's incredible. He, as I said it today, I think on Two Footed, um, I do a lot of podcasts, so sometimes they get mixed up. But I think it was Two Footed, I said, he reminds me a bit in terms of his delivery and his ability to carry the ball of, of De Bruyne. But his ability to shoot off both feet and the power he can generate and that upright stature and that build is very Michael Ballack. Now, he might never get near the level of those two. But I do think he's got the talent to get to the same kind of level. So he's one who'd be high on my list. And if I was actually picking my perfect midfield three, and that's the next question here from Mr. Records, one or two questions, and I'll go to you with this one first. Unlimited budget, who would be your three signings for Liverpool for next season? Everybody is attainable and realistic. Who should be our top three targets? Let's just pretend not everybody. Like, So we're not going to get Vinicius or we're not going to get whoever. Take out the top 10 players in the world. We're not getting any of them. Who would you go for? You can pick three players, parachute into this team and turn it around. Who would you go for? Oh, God. Only three. Let's say four, because I think we need four starters. So go with four. Right. Um, and they can be anybody you want. God, it is so difficult. I think I'm going to have to pick Caicedo still, just because yeah, even with one. four, you're still looking at at least one aspect of central midfield is still going to be lacking or relying on someone from this season or whatever it is. So I think Caicedo probably ticks most boxes of what we do need out of the many, many things. So I'll go with him. I will go with... Kaio Saka not signing a new deal. Arsenal panic and have to sell him and we go for him and get him. Love him. What a player. 
I can't honestly see that happening, but you know, you've put the, these these options on the table for me. I'm just going to take it. Um, Theo Hernandez. I had a feeling you'd go for him. He, you, you've long been chairman of the Theo Hernandez <laughs> fan club, and I, I do agree that a new left back should be something that we look at quite strongly this summer. Um, I think Robertson has had. <clears throat> I think he was. I think he was pretty poor last season on the whole. Uh, I think it was disguised by the fact that Virgil was was outstanding. And this is a weird narrative that Virgil hasn't been the same since the knee injury. Maybe he hasn't been quite the same, but he was the best defender of the world last year. I think he made up for a lot of Robbo's deficiencies. People seem to forget that through quite a bit of last season, there was calls for Costas because Robbo was in poor form. And I think Robbo has been fairly stinky this season without Virgil there to elevate him I think Robbo's fallen off massively Ali has put in the chat Alfonso Davies is unhappy in Germany who would you take Davies or Theo I'd take Davies because of the age I love Theo but I would take Davies because of the age now it, it of all the transfers we missed on over the years it, the, the Davies one is the one that annoys me the most because we had the inside track on him. I was living in Canada at the time. All of the reporting was Liverpool are going to sign this kid. We had Andy O'Brien working for us as a scout who had been a long-time player with the Whitecaps, lived in Vancouver, had a personal relationship with Davies, had been something of a mentor to Davies. And we sat on our hands and let Byron sign him for £14 million or something like that. And, like... We needed a backup left back at the time. And the thing with him was he could also play on the wing. Still can. Can play both wings. Can play in midfield. Can be whatever you want. He could have been anything. Iron chose to make him a left back. He didn't arrive as a left back. Um, I would take Davies. There you go. Who are yours? Right. Mine are... I would look for a different type of left back. I want a defensive left back who enables us to switch into a back three and gives Trent more freedom to get forward and play in higher positions. So Ibu shoves across a little Virgil move central and that left back slots in. There's two names on my list. There's a couple of others that I take, but if I've got an unlimited budget, the two names are Josco Gvardiol. I think the one I press for is Levi Colwell from Chelsea. Um, I, 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 every time I watch him play, I'm so impressed. And I just think, you know, the price, I think he'd be a lot cheaper than, than what Gvardiol would be. And I wouldn't be surprised if Chelsea do sell him this summer. Because they bought Badi Ashile, they're a stupid club, and they need to sell a bunch of players this summer. I would throw 50, 55 million at them for Colwell. I know it's a big amount of money for a player that's not hugely proven. I think he's, I think he's a special defensive talent. And I think you also get your successor to Virgil with him. He plays left back for a couple of years and then you shift him into the middle to replace Virgil. He'd be the first one for me. Um, so I get Trent, Ibu, Virgil and Colwell in front of Allison. I, I think that defensively is, is close to perfect. Um, my other three would all be in midfield. So Caicedo is, is the first one I'd go for in midfield. He just ticks every box for me. And I think I think it's a realistic transfer as well. I do think when he signed that new deal, there's probably a handshake agreement between him and Tony Bloom that he can leave at the right price. And I've said a few times I'd offer them eighty million on add-ons. I don't care. He's twenty-one. He's already one of the best midfielders in the league. I think he's got a legitimate case to be in the team of the year. He won't get the votes because he's at Brighton, but I think he's I think he's spectacular. I would go for a player that we tried to sign last summer and I would go back for Chuameni. He'd be my six. I'd offer the same deal to, to Real as I would to Brighton for Caicedo, 80 million in add-ons. Last night, Camavinga played left-back and Chuameni still didn't get on the pitch until the last six minutes. I don't think he's settled all that well. I don't think he's part of Carlo's plans. And people have said, look, Modric will leave, Cruz will leave. That's fine. Do they really open up a place for Chiumeni? Now, you could say, well, Cruz is playing as a six, so he slots in there. Okay, maybe. But he's a very different type of player. 
And Camavinga seems like the more natural one to slot in instead of Tony Cruz. Modric leaving doesn't affect Chiumeni because Chiumeni's not playing as an eight for them. He's certainly not going to be their creator. And it's Real, so they're going to go and sign more players. So I, I would go for him. And I, I don't think it's unrealistic that Real might consider. Put it this way. If you went to Real and said, look, we know you want Jude. But we know you're struggling to get the money together for Jude. We'll give you $80 million for Chiumeni. That will get you Jude because you already have what's needed to get the rest. You already have that other $50 million there. We'll take Chiumeni off your hands and you take Jude. You, now you have Jude, you've got Camavinga, and you've got Valverde. You've got young Blanco, you've got a whole bunch of other midfielders. And you've got the freedom and, and the draw to sign whoever you want moving forward. So he would be next. And my last one, I love the, the Kyle Saka shout. I, 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 he's such a good player. But I, I would go for another, an attacking midfielder to play in my midfield. So I would go for either Michael Elise, or Elise, whichever way it's pronounced. <clears throat> now, if it's him, what I would want us to do is to switch the midfield around and play the play Caicedo as the more defensive one on the right, and Elise on the left. So now I've got his delivery on the left and Trent's delivery on the right, and Darwin is scoring 50 goals a season. Or I'd go Zabozlai. I, I want that a player who can be an elite chance creator and add goals. Zabozlai probably is more ready and physically he's he's more developed. But Michael Elise, there's, there's something about him when I watch him play that I just think as a creator with his delivery, I don't see many better around Europe for his ability to put the ball wherever he wants to put it. His set pieces are incredible. He can play any type of pass. He's got great pace. He can beat players 1v1. He works harder than people think as well. And there's times where maybe the effort comes and goes. A little bit like Trent. I think that's often the case with players that are those kind of elite young talents. But I, I probably lean Elise because I like the idea of having his creativity on the left and Trent's on the right with that back three, Trent pushing on. At least not playing as a wing back, but being the widest on the left. And then Mo Darwin and Diaz up front. That's what I would do. Then I get that back three and Camavinga and Caicedo sat in front of them. I've got five guys that you've got to get through if you want a shot on my goal. And I've got five elite players going forward in Trent, Elise, Mo, Darwin and Diaz. So my very quick question for a very quick answer for you is if you want an attacking most of it, why are you going Elise over Saka when he can play there? He's a much better player now. He's incredibly intelligent. He's been brilliant in central midfield and the only reason he's not there is because he's even a little bit better for Arsenal on the flank. I don't think his delivery is as good as Elise. I think he's a better dribbler. I think he's a better goal scorer. I don't think he's a better creator. I watch Elise and I see a player that can lit, that can literally put the ball wherever he wants it. It's like watching a left-footed Trent. Sack is incredible. Absolutely incredible. And look, if he, I certainly wouldn't say no to Bikayo Saka. And maybe he's more suited to the role because he's played left-back before as well. And he is that a harder worker. But there's just something about Michael Elise that when I watch him play, I just I fall in love every time I watch him play. I think he's phenomenally good. Perhaps it's the fact there's more chance of it happening for Liverpool. That's probably it. That that is <laughs> probably it because because like you said, with Saka, in all likelihood he's going to sign that new contract and he is going to stay at Arsenal, which is such a shame because you know he deserves far better than that that rabble. <laughs> but. Um, Look, I'd, I'd take Sack in a heartbeat, but I just, I don't know. I just, Michael Elise, he, he's just, Elise, Elise, Chiumeni, Caicedo, and, and Hall will, will be my four. And I, I I think there's a way we could make it work if the owners are willing to spend, because we have a lot of, we, we've got a bunch of players we could potentially sell. You know, you could sell Jones, you could sell Carvalho, you could potentially sell Harvey and and get a lot of money together, maybe get a hundred million together from sales with Gomez and Matip and Carvalho and Kelleher and Simicus going out. You could maybe get a bit more than a hundred. 
And if the owners would just fucking do what they needed to do and put their hands in the pockets, I, I think you could get those four in and then fill out the rest with, like, you know, Ola Aina on a free as a backup right back and Ron Robert Zeeler as a cheap million quid, maybe goalkeeper, maybe he's on a free or, you know, things like that I think you could do relatively cheap, cheaply. Um, let's move on. Uh, that's it. That is all our questions, I think, that we've gotten. So, yes. yes. We have gotten through it in about an hour, which I think is a fair effort for us. Um, so, yeah, that answers every question, and that is that is all we have. So, uh, we will be back this week. Uh, I'm actually not sure when this one's coming out. We're going to record the Leeds podcast directly after this. I'm not sure which, which order they'll come out. I think this one probably comes out today, maybe, and Leeds will come out towards the end of the week. But uh, we'll be back with that one anyway. So, thank you all for listening. Carol, is there anything you want to mention before we go? Just actually uh, in the chat while we were discussing, I don't know which question, one of the ones to buy, I suppose, uh, Mo, uh, Mo Chatras mentioned Mohamed Kudus. I think Kudus would be a great addition for us this season, this summer, just because of the versatility he has, as long as he's not going to be above that, again, the sort of 30-35 threshold of a normal squad player, I think that would be a great addition for us. I'd put Kudus in that. Kudus in that role I've, I've outlined for Elise could also be fairly spectacular. Yeah, I think so. He's a great player. He is a seriously good player. <laughs> and he's so explosive as well. Uh, Mohamed Kudu is definitely somebody I would take. Uh, Nigel is informing us that Sadio Mane has been suspended by Bar- by Bayern Munich. Uh, he punched Leroy Sané in the face after the game uh, against Man City, which is, you know, exciting. Um, right, that'll do us for today. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement, and we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. You won't regret it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network.